our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 24 this evening. As we study the Bible on Sunday nights, Genesis to uh, Revelation, and we find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 24. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, you'll be fairly lost without one, I think, tonight uh, as we try to cover two or three chapters. And uh, so just wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you. I want to take care of a little bit of business here before we get into the Word. Chris and Angela Katz, congratulations. I have not had a chance to say that. Would you please stand? Married? Oh, please. What is it? So, okay. We just wanted to celebrate, you know, month number one or month number two, wherever this is right now. You know, we love you both, and uh, I'm still very bitter against Jeff for, but anyway, I know it's God's will, and I'm glad for it, but I didn't get a chance to say anything. You've probably been here, and I'm gone, and vice versa, so congrats. We love you so much. Please be seated. Just, otherwise, I'll have you come up and preach, Chris. And then be aware that next Sunday night, um, we're going to be uh, simulcasting the Harvest America Crusade with Greg Laurie, going to be held in uh, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, I think in one of the uh, indoor stadiums there. And there's going to be uh, worship by Need to Breathe, Mercy Me, Phil Wickham, uh, Trip Lee, tremendous uh, worship and uh, music ministry. Greg, of course, one of the most anointed evangelists in the world today, just a gift that God has upon his life. Gospel message. Here we are just a week away now. Uh, all, the worst that anybody can do is say no to us. It's an invitation to come out next uh, Monday, Sunday night. You come on out, but invite somebody to come out along. We've had, uh, in the simulcast, I was surprised we started doing it a few years ago when they offered it, and I thought, who's going to come out for a simulcast, you know, and how, because it's like watching a gigantic television, and, uh, but you came out. A lot of people came out. Hundreds of people came out, totally pumped like we were right in the stadium, uh, in a part of it, people getting saved right here in this, in this room now, thousands of miles away from the actual event, Holy Spirit present, uh, honoring His gospel. So be aware of that for your own edification next week, and then uh, a final week's opportunity uh, to invite others. There are flyers that can, you can pick up out in the fellowship hall that make it easy just to hand it to someone and invite them uh, to, uh, to come on out uh, to that evening. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 24. As soon as you get there, I'll start. All right. I think it's important uh, just to understand a little something. I mean, you, there's so many deportations that happen among the Jews at this particular time. Um, and then so many Jehoiakims and Jehoiachins and Jos Josiahs and Zedekiahs. It's, you know, nobody really keeps, can keep up with all of the names. Again, the book of Jeremiah is one in which it isn't strictly chronological. It's put together by the Holy Spirit on the basis of subject matter, and these things are clumped together. So the book jumps around uh, a little bit. And, uh, but it is useful to at least know that uh, the Babylonians invaded Judah 
uh, three times and conquered it. Uh, the very first time was in 605 uh, B.C. Babylon defeated Egypt at that particular point in time to become the world kind of dominating empire for that part of the world. While they were in the neighborhood after conquering Egypt, they decided to go ahead and uh, grab Judah at the same time. And at that particular point in time, Judah became a vassal state to, uh, to Babylon. It wasn't 605 that uh, in that conquest that Babylon then kind of stripped a layer of the most talented and most educated, uh, not only just educated, in, but talented in terms of, uh, of science for the, the day, able to work with metals, uh, farming, and so forth. Uh, the Babylon stripped away, as they did in all of the countries in those days, stripped away the best from Judah and then took it to Babylon in order to use these uh, smart people uh, to advance Babylon. It's called a brain drain that usually happens with uh, emigration where people voluntarily leave a country. Uh, in order to find a better opportunity in another country. We've been the beneficiaries in the United States of this for many, many decades, where some of the brightest and the best leave countries that can hardly afford to lose their talent, but they come here uh, because, uh, uh, because there's opportunity for them that isn't there in the other land. And so in that uh, grab of talent, Daniel was taken, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was taken, others were taken, and it was known as the first deportation that occurred. And this kind of thing, by the way, goes on in a far more politically correct and acceptable form today. The United States takes advantage of this all the time. It's called an H-1 visa, where we use that to pull away the brightest and the best from other countries to come into our country as well so that we can continue to be ahead of the curve. So leaders are always on the lookout for sharp people. They're not a dime a dozen. And so they went into Judah and stripped, them, uh, stripped a layer of that away. And then in 601 B.C., Babylon uh, was defeated uh, by Egypt. Judah decided, in, in, and it was going to be a very temporary kind of defeat. Judah saw this as an opportunity to break free of the yoke of Babylon, and they rebelled against uh, uh, Babylon as well. But then in 597, Babylon came in and in force uh, conquered Judah once again, uh, took another layer of their people away from Babylon at that time, and, uh, and then in 589, ten years later, uh, Zedekiah is the king, uh, and much of the book is written about the period in which he is uh, contemplating rebellion against Judah so that, or against Babylon so that Judah will no longer be a vassal state. And when Babylon comes in the third time, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is very upset. He is not going to come in and defeat them a fourth time. And so when he comes into Judah and into Babylon, he levels the country. He levels the temple. He levels the entire capital city. And it gives you an idea for uh, why he was so furious. And if the people of Judah had just listened to God and said, Nebuchadnezzar is my instrument of judgment against you to chasten you, 
Come under his yoke, and you'll survive. But if you try and fight against him, then he's going to come in and destroy you. The, the, the choice that Judah had through so much of uh, the latter part of Jeremiah's ministry was not, uh, not that they would be free or not be free. The choice God was offering them was to recognize that they had sinned greatly against God and that God was going to judge them for it until they came into repentance. The choice that they had was to either submit to uh, the uh, rule and the domination of Babylon and continue to stay in their land and continue to survive or rebel against Babylon and then be utterly and completely crushed. That was their choice. Freedom was not, in the light of their sin, was not something that was on the table. But it gives you an idea of what's happening and, um, and very, very important for understanding now what we look at in chapter 24. And the Lord then showed me, Jeremiah declared, and there were two baskets of figs set uh, before the temple of the Lord. Uh, and so, a common picture uh, in the area of the temple in those days, people would bring their first fruits to the Lord, and sometimes that would be figs. And you've got this beautiful basket, two baskets really, and uh, uh, of figs that are there in the area of the temple. And uh, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Babylon and had brought them, uh, from Jerusalem rather, and brought them to Babylon. So here's these two baskets of figs, and God says, all right, Jeremiah, take a look at these because I'm going to speak uh, through these uh, to you and to the nation. He, he describes the vision here. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. Some of you are just getting your lips are just tongue is watering your mouth. You just perfect fig right there, basket uh, filled with those. And then the other basket had very bad figs. Now, one thing about figs is they're great when they're perfect and they're really uh, gooey. And uh, like a lot of fruit, when it goes bad, it's, it goes very bad. And so here you have another uh, basket that's filled with bad figs. They were so bad that they couldn't be eaten. And then the Lord said to Jeremiah, what do you see, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah says, listen, I have a very good, <laughs> this is, how am I doing? This is a great test. I can, there are figs. Very good figs, and uh, the, uh, the good figs are very good, and the bad, they're very, very bad. In fact, they're so bad, nobody can eat it. That's how bad they are. So he passes that test. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the hands of, uh, in, uh, for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. So this group that's been taken captive in Judah and now been stripped out of the land and taken to Babylon, God says this, I mean, it absolutely defies the thinking of the Jews at the time and even ours. We would not think that they were the blessed group or that they were the good figs, but God is saying uh, that they were for this reason. God said, I will set my eyes upon them in their captivity in Babylon, and I will put my eyes upon them for good, and I will one day bring them back to this land, 
and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. In other words, this group that went into captivity to Babylon, they were the future of the nation. They were going to be the group that were going to multiply and so forth in, in, the, in Babylon for the next 70 years and come back into the land and establish a Jewish uh, presence once again. And, and so that was the idea behind it. The Jews that stayed in Jerusalem, they're going to be slaughtered by the thousands. So the future is with the group that gets taken captive and taken out. In Babylon, and here's the whole reason for the captivity uh, God gives here, He said, in this, in this captivity, then I will give them a heart to know Me, that I am the Lord. In other words, during those 70 years, uh, you remember they loved idolatry in Judah, they loved their sin, they loved rebellion against God. They would be cured of all of that in the 70-year uh, captivity in Babylon. They would once again realize, and sometimes it takes uh, a change of location for something like that to occur. Get out of the old bad neighborhood. Get out from under the old influences. And you would think that Jerusalem would have been the greatest place in the world to be influenced for godliness and a relationship with God, but it was the worst place to be. I mean, how, how damning is that? It was the worst place to be for nurturing a personal relationship with God. And so God says, I'm taking you out of here. I'm going to cure you of your idolatry. You're going to come to know me in a way that you haven't before and know that I am the Lord and you don't play games with me. And they shall then become my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me uh, with their whole heart. And so, uh, that's exactly what would ultimately uh, happen to them, and uh, they would ultimately repent. They would ultimately draw close in their relationship with God, and, uh, and they were, as a result, even though their physical circumstances were hard, they were the good figs. And he said, and as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so, uh, so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so I shall give up Zedekiah, this is the final king of Judah, when, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in a third and final time to wipe out the land. I will give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I'm going to allow Babylon to come in and destroy them. I will deliver them to trouble into all of the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, and it's to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all the places that I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and pestilence among them until they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. The reason that this uh, particular vision and prophecy would have been uh, had an impact upon the people who were in Judah and that's who it was, in Jerusalem, and that's who it was intended for, is that in the minds of the people who remained in Jerusalem after the others had been carted off, in their minds, they're the good figs, and the other people are the bad figs. Why would God allow them to be taken out of Jerusalem and Ju uh, Judah and taken to Babylon except that there's sin in their life, except there's something uh, wrong with them, except that God is displeased with them? And they got the whole thing twisted in their mind, 
And being right with God was no longer about obeying him, having a fear for him. Being right with God was about uh, your material circumstances. They, said, they thought to themselves, we must be the right ones. We must be the good and godly ones. We must not be the ones that need to repent. They've got to be the bad guys. They've got to be the ones to repent because they're the ones that have been taken away. And they, uh, they judged their spirituality on the basis of the physical uh, circumstances when the exact opposite was true. God said, I am removing this group. It is something that I am doing, and I'm doing it for their good. And those of you who remain here and continue to rebel against me and my word, you are the bad figs, and I'm going to bring judgment upon you uh, because of it. It was inconceivable to the Jews in Jerusalem that God would ever allow uh, Jerusalem to be taken by the Babylonians, uh, even after it had been taken before. There was the idea that somehow, as bad as the circumstances were around them, you think, why wouldn't you repent of your sin? You've got the Babylonians in the land. Everything that Jeremiah is saying is coming true. What do you people need to hear? to turn around. And, but in their minds would be this uh, thing from their history where the Assyrians invaded Israel when Hezekiah was the king of Israel and how an angel was dispatched on the, on the night before Jerusalem was about to be destroyed, and he uh, destroyed 185,000 frontline Assyrian troops and broke off that attack by the Assyrians. And so here in Jerusalem, they're holding on to hope that God will do the same thing for Zedekiah and for them. There's just one glaring difference between what God did under Hezekiah and what they're expecting him to do under Zedekiah. Uh, Hezekiah was a great king. He was a godly king. He was a humble king. He wanted God's uh, purposes to be accomplished within the land. God honored that. There was none of that in Jerusalem at this time. They had no right to expect anything uh, but judgment uh, from God. Now, there is this goofy thing that occurs within our uh, our lives, and it's, it, it, it's even uh, predominant in what we call today uh, the health and wealth doctrine that's been just around for decades and decades and probably forever in, in one form or another, and that is that if I just have enough faith that I will be wealthy and prosperous uh, materially, and I will never have any kind of health problems. And one of the curses of the health and wealth doctrine is it indoctrinates people into coming to a conclusion about their spirituality based upon their outward circumstances. When, in fact, a person can be absolutely healthy and have tremendous uh, uh, resources and a tremendously prosperous life and be horribly unspiritual and ungodly. It's the picture of, Jew, uh, of Jerusalem at this time. And somebody else can be going through uh, ten major trials all heaped upon one another, but it's drawing them closer to God in a way that no one in Jerusalem or no one who believes the health and wealth doctrine but isn't obeying God. I mean, they, this other person knows God in a way that they could never dream of knowing. 
And we have to be careful in our lives and because it's just there's something in us, maybe not in you exactly, but I would say in 90% of us in this room, that when something bad happens to us, and especially when a second thing on top of it or a third thing on top of it happens in our life, we begin to wonder, what's wrong with us? Why is God against me? Why does God hate me? Is there sin in my life? And, and these, this kind of probing and self-condemnation that we can put ourselves in. And we so readily believe this idea that if I'm good and if I'm godly, that my circumstances are always going to be better than the person who claims to know Christ and their life is not good and godly, but it doesn't pan out that way. Because the true riches in life is not health, as wonderful as that is, or wealth, as wonderful as that can be. A person is spiritual, and the true wealth that we, uh, that we can gain in life is a very close, personal, intimate relationship with God, where we know Him in a deep way through the difficult circumstances in our life. Very often when we're going through not anything that approaches necessarily what Job went through, but what feels like what Job went through for our lives, and that, that kind of a, of a thing can hit, so often the trial is so big that it uses up all of the oxygen in the room. Our focus is completely on it, and all we can think about is somehow in our own strength surviving this trial. It looks unfair. It looks like, why me? Why would God allow this? And then some kind of a break happens somewhere in the middle of the trial or someplace in the trial where all of a sudden our focus goes on what we are learning in the trial that we would never otherwise learn. And the relationship with God that we are developing in this trial that we would never uh, develop any other way, and then the light goes on for us and we realize that's the richness of the trial. That's what this is all about. has nothing to do with my physical circumstances. It has to do with what is happening between me and God and the privacy of my own uh, heart. And so this same kind of thing goes on the same goofy ideas that people can have and we can have that if I'm right with God and He cares about me and He loves me, it'll always look like this, and uh, it isn't always so. And it's good to be reminded when uh, we lose that job that we thought was our dream job and we'd be in it forever, or we lose that relationship in our life that we thought would be forever, and it, and it looks like God is… It, it just looks like, you know, bad figs to us. And we don't realize, you know, God's ways are so mysterious. We, so often it isn't until we get through that and then we look back upon the situation and we realize, no, that was good fig stuff right there. God was delivering me out of something that seemed absolutely perfect, but something uh, very not good was ultimately going to occur in that relationship or in that situation, and God pulled me out. The key is to know that and understand that 
uh, uh, from God's Word here tonight before that light goes on for us, sometimes further down uh, the road. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter uh, speaking to us about uh, what is, uh, how to properly assess uh, spirituality and not deceive ourselves as a result or go into condemnation and, and uh, misread things. Then in chapter 25, uh, Jeremiah uh, prophesies of uh, Judah's coming 70-year captivity in uh, Babylon, and that's what chapters 25 and 27 uh, are uh, all about. And so, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all of the people of Judah, and, and this prophecy came in the fourth year of Jehoiakim son of Josiah, who was a good king, Jehoiakim wasn't, but Josiah was king of Judah, which is, was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You got that? Now hold that thought. Just kidding. Um, which Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke to all the people of Judah and to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying… So this is what he says, and he gives us the date for when he says it. From the thirteenth year, Jeremiah said, of Josiah, that's when Jeremiah began his public ministry, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, great king, he said, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. <laughs> Twenty-three years! He's been prophesying to these people, and nobody is listening, and nobody is turning. Now, you work your age out in your mind. Go back 23 years and think about who you were and what you were doing 23 years ago, and then you get some kind of a sense for what a span of time has occurred in which Jeremiah has been prophesying to these people. That's a big chunk of life, and a lot of things happen, can happen in that period of life, and he has been prophesying day and night to these people, and nobody is listening. It is amazing. These are not the Philistines. These are not the Ammonites. These are not the Amorites. These are not the Hittites. These are the people of Judah. These are God's people. And the capacity that we have to have God speak to us about our life in totality or about a single area of our life for 23 years and our capacity to brush them off. I'm not saying it's true of anyone in this room. I'm just saying we have the ability to do it and to just allow the passage to search us tonight. And is there some area of our life that God has been speaking to for years and years and years and years, and we've been giving Him, yeah, yeah, God, maybe, and yeah, God, someday, and yeah, I hear you, but I'm just not ready yet, and so forth, and to realize that whatever that is in our life is building us toward a judgment. It is building us towards a chastisement. It isn't that God has kind of lost track of things because He hasn't judged us yet. And so, it really speaks to me. I have a capacity to just so compartmentalize 
that I'm holy in all these other areas or obedient or so forth in these other areas, and that, you know, yeah, God talks to me about that, but we've worked things out. He hasn't hammered me yet, and so it must mean he doesn't take it too seriously. And, uh, and not uh, to be careful not to do that. And so, he said, and the Lord has sent, verse 4, has sent to you all of his servants, the prophets. There were more prophets than just Jeremiah speaking to the nation at that time. And they were rising up early and, and sending them, but you have not listened or inclined your ear uh, to hear. Uh, and the prophets were saying, repent now every one of his evil way and of his evil doings. And if you do repent, you'll be able to dwell in the land that the Lord has given you. You won't go into Babylonian captivity. Yes, you'll be in bondage to Egypt, but you'll get to stay in the land. That's the best that you can do, uh, do right now. And, 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 and to this land that was given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. This was the message that was continually uh, being given to them for 23 years, and here was their response. They just simply refused. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might, and here's the consequence, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. They would not give up their uh, idolatry. They would not listen to him. I think that this speaks something I think else that I think the Lord wants to speak about uh, from the passage to us here tonight. It is so important if you were a Christian, so to speak, or you were uh, an Old Testament saint in Jerusalem back in these days, the one thing you could not do was to determine your spirituality or your faithfulness to God on the basis of the examples of the average Old Testament saint or the average child of God in Judah in those days. And the Bible teaches that in the last days in the world, there's going to, become, there's going to become a great apostasy in the world, including the United States. And sometimes you talk about this, and, people will, and, and Paul writes about the fact that people will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure what we are doing here tonight. They will not want to listen to a chapter out of Jeremiah, but they will heap unto themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And the, and it, rather than tell them what God's Word says. Well, you know, it, it, it seems like when a, a preacher or a pastor, someone like me, talks about that kind of thing, especially when we teach the Word of God, it seems very self-serving, or it seems like we're talking about something that is, you know, a, a long ways off and is going to be a long time in coming, or that I notice that somebody's fallen asleep in the sermon, and I want to wake them back up by talking about this kind of thing. But any of us can look at uh, the world around us and see the level of apostasy that is occurring uh, within Christianity, how there is this compartmentalizing, this idea that I am a great Christian based upon what I feel emotionally in uh, my relationship with God or 
uh, or in, you know, the activities that I engage in so forth, as opposed to the, my obedience to the Word of God. And here you have very easy would have been in those days to look and say, why am I killing myself taking what God says in His Word seriously and living the life that I am living when 99 out of 100 Christians I know don't care one bit about the things that I care about? But the 99% might be wrong, and it may end up being that kind of a percentage by the time that the Lord comes back to rapture the church, Jesus said that would I find any faith at His return? My point is this. In my relationship with the Lord, in your relationship with the Lord, every single one of us should be an example of a relationship with God to one another. But when things get to a place where things go so far down, what gets accepted as being normal or what gets accepted as being acceptable, when we wake up one day and we realize this is a hundred miles away from what God calls God's people to be in an unholy world, then we better stop making what other Christians are doing, whether they're in my family or they're on television or wherever they might be, and to return to the Word of God and say, this is what God calls me to be, and that's what I'm going to make my example. They doubtless comforted themselves in the fact that look at how many of us are, call ourselves children of God and yet are engaged in the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the sin that we're engaged in. How can it be such a big deal if so many of us are doing these things? We're at a place in church history without a revival in which you are going to have to look out for your Christian life and the health of it on your own between you and God. You're not going to be able to depend upon some large group of people that are going to spur you on to greatness in, in terms of numbering maybe in the tens of millions on the face of the planet, though I hope the numbers are like that. But when apostasy begins to grow and enlarge, it's very easy for everything about God to dumb down and they'd get comfortable in that. And we must never allow that uh, to, uh, to happen uh, to us. And then God speaks to them in verse 8 about the consequences of what they're doing here. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not listened to my words, behold, I will send and take all of the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And imagine here, Jeremiah says to Judah, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. In the Old Testament, Israel was to be God's servant. And God says, I can't, not only can I not call you my servant anymore in the light of your condition spiritually, but I'm going to have to make a pagan leader of Babylon to be my servant. There's nobody among you that I can call upon uh, to do what needs to be done. It would have been a, a tremendous uh, slap, and they would have noticed it. 
And so I will bring, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against those nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. God said, I'm going to wipe you out. And moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, that is parting, joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp. These are the sounds of joy, of, of celebrations, of marriages, of industry and productivity. These are the sounds in life that make life worth living. God says all of that is going to come to an end in that, that judgment, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations, including Judah, shall serve uh, the king of Babylon for uh, 70 years. You would think that their ears would have been pinned back, and they would have said, Jeremiah, where in the world do we have to go uh, to repent? And that wasn't uh, their response uh, at all. When God speaks here, in verses 8 through 11 about his judgment to come not only upon Judah, but to come upon the Gentile nations surrounding Judah, it makes an important point to us. We're going to see in just a minute or so that God speaks about his judgment beginning in Judah and with Judah. Paul, I mean, Peter, you might remember, in one of his epistles, he talks about the fact that judgment begins in the house of God. God, but it never ends there. When God's people become defiled by the world and are being conformed by the world, God begins by judging them. But His judgment, in, in order to bring them to repentance, but His judgment never stops there. It then moves into the nations, uh, into other people's lives as a whole. Here's the idea. So often people look at us, I, I think, here we are as Christians, we take the Bible seriously, we take God seriously, and so forth. And, um, and they can look at us and say, and even have some level of respect for all of that, and look and say concerning our lives, well, you know, as Christians, they can't do that. They can't fornicate like everybody else, or have adultery like everybody else, or use drugs like everybody else, or get loaded every night like everybody else, or whatever it might be. Because if they do that, they're going to get in trouble with God. And some people have that kind of a limited understanding related to God. All of that is true as far as it goes, but it doesn't mean that the person who chooses not to be a Christian or doesn't want to walk with God is going to escape judgment for the same sins. It's just the judgment begins first in the house of the Lord. The reason it begins among God's people is because when we sin, we sin against a greater light than the world sins against. We sin against the light of conscience, and we sin against the voice and the presence of the Holy Spirit within our life. A non-Christian does not have the Holy Spirit in their life. They sin against conscience because everyone has a God-given conscience, but they don't sin against the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit isn't present in their life. 
But when the nations of the world or an unbeliever, a non-Christian, sins and violates God's Word, God doesn't say, well, that's okay with me because they don't really claim to follow me. It's still sin, and God will still judge it. And it's interesting, as I look at the world that I live in around me week in and week out, things aren't looking that great in terms of the trends morally within, uh, within our nation. I think that our current administration is doing some uh, very, very good things in terms of, of putting very moral, godly people in certain positions and, and doing certain things that are returning uh, a... a a concern for law and order, the reward of righteousness, the punishment of what is wrong. These things are necessary within, within a nation. But when you look at the world around us, and we talk about here they are, everybody's working on, you know, wanting to do something on health care, wanting to do something on tax cuts and get this economy going and so forth. I'm for all of that happening, whatever it is that I pray for everybody that's involved, that God will providentially guide them in all of these things. I don't know how you fix some of, of these problems, but that's not my full-time job to try and deal with. I'm called to do something uh, different. But they can fix all of those problems and more. And if the country and the world continues to decline morally, it is headed for a cliff. There is no future in it. And just because the world increasingly rejects the existence of God, rejects the commands of God and the standard of God in His Word, it doesn't make one bit of difference to God. He is one day going to judge it. And he will begin with his people who find themselves in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and uh, in, in the midst of sin, and then he will then move on to the nations themselves. But I think there's this uh, delusion and, and seduction among people thinking, well, as long as you ignore the Bible or you don't believe in the Bible, that somehow the judgment that God speaks about in the book of Revelation is never going to come close uh, to me. It's out of sight and out of mind. Uh, it simply isn't true. And when you look at, for instance, what is going to happen with Judah and the surrounding nations at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, you realize this has happened over and over and over again in human history, and it is going to happen uh, one more time in spades in, in the, uh, the end times and that horrible description of, of the Great Tribulation in, in Genesis, I mean, Revelation chapter 6 through uh, chapter 19. And then uh, God promises here as He speaks about how He's going to use Babylon as an instrument of His judgment, He then goes on to talk about how He will ultimately, at the end of the 70 years that they are put into captivity, that He will judge Babylon. Now, before we get to that, and I'm spending a lot of time in kind of these uh, creases within the passage, but it's important to understand. When God speaks to Judah and tells them, I'm going to take you into captivity, to the Babylonians for 70 years. It's elsewhere in the Old Testament that God tells us why He did that. Why 70 years? Why not 80 years? Why not 200 years? Why not 30 years? Why 70 years? The reason God did it for 70 years is that God spoke through His law to the children of Israel, and He said, Every seventh year, I want you to harvest and, and, and plant and harvest six 
out of seven years and do that for the six years, but there's to be a Sabbath rest on the seventh year. You let the ground lay fallow and let the, the, the trees and the orchards all produce uh, what will be produced naturally. I'll prosper you in the six years so you can take the seventh year off. How great would that be? How wooden-headed do you have to be? What if God came to you, Greg, and said, listen, you work hard for me for six years, and I'll give you the seventh year off. You'd be like, where's the contract? I'll sign it. One year off every six years? Are you kidding me? And yet they got so greedy uh, that they began to then farm the seventh year in violation of God's Word in order to make more money in, in violation of God's Word. They had done it for 490 years, and they owed the land 70 years of rest. And so God says, I know you won't give it to me, so I'll send you to Babylon so that the land can have the rest that it is long overdue. But at the end of the 70 years, uh, at that time, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, I will make it a perpetual desolation. Babylon uh, conquered Israel, uh, Judah. They conquered the world. They went too far. They went too far. God wanted to use them as an instrument of judgment, but when God did, they enjoyed it too much, and they went further than they should have gone. And it displeased the Lord, and He noticed it. It's important when God uses our lives as an instrument of chastening or confronting a person that we don't go beyond what God wants us to do because God notices it. We don't pile on in those situations. God noticed, uh, took note of it, also took note of their iniquity. It was a very, very idolatrous uh, uh, empire, and the Lord said, ultimately, I will judge it as well. And so the Lord did. Here He is. He's prophesying it. Uh, you know, Jeremiah still got, you know, 20-some, uh, maybe 20 more years left in, in his, uh, you know, prophetic kind of life here. He's talking about 70 years. Well, wait a second. We've changed kings from where we began. But he's got some years before the end of his prophetic ministry. Add 70 years on it. He's prophesying concerning Babylon. And at the end of the 70 years, it happened exactly as God said it would be. The Medo-Persians defeated uh, the uh, 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 Babylon, and, uh, and so it was defeated by a series of, of empires following that. S verse 13, so that I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their uh, own hands. And uh, God goes on to say, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this cup of fury from my hand, this wine cup of fury from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink. It's a common image both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that a cup of wine, when it was so described by God, it represented the wrath or the fury of God, and He would force 
a nation to drink that cup of His, uh, his judgment as an indication that judgment was going to come upon them and their land. And so God says, take this wine cup, fill it up, this wine that's in the cup, it represents my fury, and I want you to cause Judah and all of the surrounding nations to drink of that cup. I want you to let them know judgment is coming. And they will drink, and the idea is they'll drink of the wine, but they'll also drink of the judgment, and they will stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. You can kind of picture it. Sometimes you'll see a war uh, movie that's uh, very maybe graphically, uh, what they can do in terms of special effects in movies today is incredible, but you'll see something where there's the middle of a war scene, and it's so horrible, the violence is so great, the noise that's going on around, the carnage of the battle all around a person, and there they are just uh, walking around in circles. They're absolutely stunned, absolutely dazed by what it is that they're in the middle of. The violence, the battle is so great that it's, it, it is incapacitates them physically because it's blown their mind. They don't know how to get their mind around what they're in the middle of. And God is saying what Babylon is going to do when they come in, the results is going to be that kind of a thing. You guys that think you're so proud and so rough and tough and so strong and you can take on Babylon and so forth, you're going to be just like a guy wandering around mad in a circle when all of this comes down. And Jeremiah said, then I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all of the nations to drink to whom the Lord had sent me, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is to this day. He took the cup then to the uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, we, it, it, it's it could very well be, but it could be somewhat unlikely that he traveled to the capital of all of these particular countries, went to the king, and gave him the drink of the wine. Uh, what's, uh, what could also be happening here is that all of these nations have sent ambassadors, representatives of the king, to Judah uh, to contemplate overthrowing Babylon, and that Jeremiah comes to them and their embassies within Jerusalem one at a time and pronounces this to them. Uh, one of those things is probably the beans by which he uh, communicated this. So he goes to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his servants and his princes and all of his people. They're going to be judged, all of the mixed multitude, the kings of the land of Uz, all of the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaz. Uh, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, all of the kings of Tyre, all of the kings of Sodom, and the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tema, uh, uh, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners, the, the names of countries and territories in those days, all of the kings of Arabia and the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all of the kings of Zimri, all of the kings of Elam, all of the kings of the Medes, all of the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Shishak, and this is kind of a cryptic name uh, given for Babylon. Babylon will one day uh, be judged as well, shall drink uh, after them. And God was declaring to them, judgment is coming, not just upon Judah. 
Yes, Judah was sinning against God and against greater light in sinning against God, but they were sinning in the eyes of God as well as testified to God's Word and testified, as I've said before, to conscience. They were guilty. Everyone is guilty before God for our sin, whether we believe in Him or not. And therefore you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I shall send, uh, which I shall send among you. It's just awful, these tests for uh, dental work, isn't it? <laughs> and it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished, for I will call for the sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. And therefore, God uh, continues His prophecy against them. Therefore, prophesy against them all these words and say to them. And God likens now His judgment against them through uh, various images that He lays out here. A very poetic <clears throat> language. God's trying to get through to them every way that He can in the language that He's using. Excuse me a moment. <clears throat> Still working through these allergies. And so the Lord describes His judgment uh, that it would be like, He said, the Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation, and He will roar mightily against His fold. And so here you have the image of a lion in a uh, sheep uh, uh, den, or, uh, and, uh, and and, of course, you wouldn't want to meet a lion under any circumstances, but God is going to… They, they ought to have been terrified of the judgment that was coming. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants uh, of the earth. His judgment is going to be like a vintner who crushes the grapes in order to, uh, to get the wine. A noise will come to the ends of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with the nations, and He will plead His ca uh, case with all flesh. And so He will come against them as a prosecuting attorney. And uh, as a prosecuting attorney is strong in his prosecution of someone who is guilty of a capital crime, bold in that uh, uh, prosecution against such a person because they're dangerous to society. God said, my judgment is going to take uh, that kind of tone uh, that you would see in such an attorney in a courtroom. And He will give, uh, uh, give those who are wicked uh, to the sword. In other words, God will be like a judge sentencing someone guilty of a capital crime. No mercy. And thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. God said, my judgment's going to come in like a great storm, uh, like a great tornado. Uh, the closest thing I want to be to a tornado is the weather channel on television where I can kind of, uh, oh, here's the tornado 
chasers. God bless them. Let me just see. You know, I hope they survive. I'm glad I'm not with them. Uh, let me get another Coke uh, while I watch from the comfort of my living room. But uh, it's another thing here when you have a tornado coming in. <clears throat> and so he's speaking from all of these different angles again to try and get through to them. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, nor gathered, or buried. They shall become like dung or refuse or garbage on the ground. Uh, God's judgment would leave, as we've seen before. Uh, so many people would die in that uh, the destruction in Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, that there was nobody left to bury the dead bodies. They were just like litter out there uh, in, in, in garbage on the ground. God then uh, cried out, uh, wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll around in the ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall be like a precious, fall like a precious vessel. So you have this great work of art in your home in those days, which would have probably been a piece of pottery, and God's judgment was going to be like uh, breaking uh, that that piece of pottery, shattering it into pieces. And the shepherds will have no way to flee, the shepherds being the spiritual leaders of the land, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. The voice of the cry of the shepherds and the wailing of the leaders uh, to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down. Because of the fierce anger of the Lord, He has left His lair uh, like a lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor, speaking of the Lord, and because of his fierce anger. And so uh, there was the, the shepherds and the people ultimately would be powerless uh, before God's righteous judgment when, uh, when ultimately uh, it, did, uh, it did come. We'll stop there, of course, tonight as we look at the clock and pick things up in 26, uh, Lord willing, uh, the week after uh, next Sunday as we enjoy the Harvest uh, Crusade uh, simulcast next, uh, next Sunday. When I read through Jeremiah, you know, you, you and I, I hope um, uh, we've introduced the thought once or twice as we've been studying it, but important for us to not look at this as something that's now, you know, thousands of years in the past, and what in the world does this have to say uh, to us today? There's nothing new under the sun. People aren't any different than they were. Uh, we have more gadgets than people had in the past, but we're all basically the same uh, down through history. And as, as awesome and as uh, fearsome as this judgment was that Babylon ultimately brought upon Judah, it is going to look like some kind of a Girl Scout camp compared to the judgment that is one day going to come uh, to this earth in the great tribulation. And to be careful to look at the warnings here related to this uh, that are given here 
uh, to allow it to test our own hearts, our own relationship with the Lord, our own propensity to fall asleep spiritually or to begin to compare ourselves among ourselves in terms of judging spirituality and so forth. The lessons are so important, probably even more important for us to heed and to embrace uh, today and the hour in which God has called us to serve Him as ever they were at the time of Jeremiah. Let's stand together and we'll pray. As we're standing up, if you're with us tonight and you're not yet a Christian, we'll be up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to pray with you uh, to receive the Lord tonight and to receive His salvation and begin the relationship with God that you've been craving.